you have your copy of God's Word, I'd invite you to open it to the book of Matthew chapter 28 this morning. Matthew chapter 28. We'll be looking this morning at verses 1 through 15 of Matthew chapter 28. Of course, we will focus in on the resurrection this morning. Matthew 28, 1 through 15, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now, after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone, sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. And so they departed quickly from the tomb, and with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up, and they took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And while they were going, behold, Some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had a, and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. We live in a day when the Christian faith is simply looked upon as a preference or a matter of opinion. In fact, many would say that all the religions are the same and they only have superficial differences to them. And so... All one has to do is figure out which religion works best for them. It doesn't matter which one is true because it only matters what is true for you because truth is relative. However, to live one's life pretending like there is no real truth will in the end be a costly mistake. Belief is empty if it's not based on some sort of truth. We like to say things like, what is true for you is not true for me because we think it sounds good, but we don't really believe that. For example, let's say that I feel like what is yours is mine, and so I go into your house, and I take your stuff, and I gain access to your bank account, and I spend all of your money, and I get the keys to your car, and I drive it around and do what I want with it. After all, I feel what is yours is mine. And that is my reality. That is my truth. I think you'd probably have a problem with that. It doesn't matter how I feel. My 
truth and your truth are not the same. And they're going to be on a collision course with one another. One of them is really true and the other is not. The last thing that we need is for this world to run on feelings on what people feel is true. In fact, that is why we are in many of the problems that we are in today as a society. Because we operate not based upon truth, but based upon what someone feels is true. This is why in everyday life we typically operate on what we know is true instead of feelings or preference on what we think is true. The philosopher and broadcaster Professor C.E.M. Jode was once asked who of all past figures in history he would most like to have met and what question he would most have liked to ask. And he chose Jesus Christ and he wanted to ask him the most important question in the world. Did you or did you not rise from the dead? And that is the issue in Matthew's Gospel. You can almost overhear the debate in the undertones of this chapter. It was the critical issue. Indeed, it was almost the only issue separating Christians from Jews in the first century A.D. when faced with the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first question that crosses our mind is this. Is it true? People don't just rise from the dead, or do they? The resurrection account of Jesus, is, of Jesus concerned a man they all knew. He was executed in a public manner for everyone to see. Everybody witnessed it. He was then seen alive and well, but something was different. And, and he was here on earth for six weeks after his public death. There is nothing comparable to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the entire history of the world. Christianity rises and falls with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus did not really rise from the dead, then we are wasting our time, our faith is a lie, and we are fools playing some sort of sick game for even gathering here on a Sunday morning. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians that if it is not true, we are to be pitied more than anyone else. Jesus came and lived a sinless life. He died a criminal's death and he rose again. He faced and conquered sin and the resurrection is proof that God's wrath was vindicated. Is it true? Matthew says, yes, it is true. Matthew says he is risen and this morning we will see that he is indeed risen. First, I want us to see in this passage scripture an empty tomb. In verse 1, we see the women went to the tomb. They knew where the tomb of Jesus was, and we will look at this in greater detail shortly. Anyway, they went to the tomb. Now, skip down to verse 6 of chapter 28. The angel states, He is not here. He has risen, as he said. And then he invites them to come and see where Jesus laid. And so they are invited into the tomb to see where he used to be. And then they are told to go and tell the disciples. What are they supposed to tell the disciples? That Jesus has risen from the dead and that he is going to Galilee and you will see him there as I told you so. Fast forward down to verse 9 where we read the women see Jesus and what do they do? They worship him. 
Does Jesus receive their worship as they fall to his feet and worship him? The answer is yes, he does. Have you ever wondered why the church gathers on a Sunday morning for worship? Well, before we get into the explanation of the resurrection, I want us to first notice about the empty tomb why it is that we worship on Sunday. Verse 1 says, Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, this is the foundation for the Christian church's worship on the first day of the week, and why we see throughout the scriptures that the church is gathering on the first day of the week. In other words, every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we gather on Sunday morning, it's to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John also records that it took place on the first day of the week in John chapter 20, verse 1. And then he mentions it again in verse 19, when the disciples are behind closed doors and the Lord appears to them. Meeting on the first day of the week became the standard for the church. In fact, it appears that Paul expected the churches to meet on the first day of the week in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be a collecting when I come. In the book of Revelation, chapter 1, John writes, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. John set aside a day of worship, even while being exiled on the island of Patmos. And just like he had seen the resurrected Christ on Sunday, he sees him on the island in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. The Sabbath for the nation of Israel was celebrated because it was the day after the completion of creation. Sabbath was merely a foreshadow of what was to come and be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so when we celebrate the Lord's Day, it is a testimony of our confidence of his resurrection, that the wrath of God was satisfied against sinful man and that Christ fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. And so we gather together on Sunday morning in a celebration of the resurrected Jesus Christ, not just on Easter Sunday, but every Sunday is a gathering to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're giving a testimony that we have entered into Christ's righteousness and it is a foreshadow of eternal life to come. And so we meet on Sunday to celebrate the resurrection. Show the world that we believe that the resurrection is true, that he is coming again to take us home with him. And we gather together to celebrate and to worship him. And so we see this empty tomb and we see why it is that we are to worship on Sunday. Now what I want to do this morning is look at some fictitious explanations of the resurrection because I believe that this passage of Matthew dispels those fictitious explanations. Before we get into that, I want to point out two quick things. First, notice in verse 1 that it is women who were first going to the tomb. Women. Women were unlikely witnesses to the resurrection. Because in general, their testimonies were not even valued in the culture of the day. 
And so if the gospel writers were trying to persuade people of some sort of hoax, then choosing two women as the first witnesses to the empty tomb would not have been the way to convince people that the resurrection was true. If you're going to make up some sort of uh, concocted story about the most significant miracle that the world has ever known and hang the Christian faith on it and say, this is, this is the whole of the Christian faith that we follow the resurrection of, the Jesus, of Jesus Christ. If you are going to make up a story, you're not going to put forward two questionable witnesses as evidence to the story and say, oh, by the way, these were the first witnesses. Second, look down at verses 11 through 15. Not at any time in verses 11 through 15 do the guards dispute the body of Christ as being missing. Their only concern was to come up with some sort of explanation as to where the body of Christ went. No one could produce the body. If they could, it would have immediately been squashed or it immediately would have squashed any confidence in a resurrection. However, no one ever denies that the tomb is empty. Why? Because they couldn't. They need to come up with a better explanation than a resurrection. And so for this reason, there have been some fictitious attempts to explain the resurrection of Jesus Christ away. And so I want to look at some of those attempts and I want to be as brief as possible, but there's five fictitious events when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I believe this is important because oftentimes we hear, well, that's not real. The resurrection's not real. There's no way that the resurrection could have happened. So let's look at these areas. First, it's known as the swoon theory. The swoon theory. And that claim is that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, and it comes in many different forms. Some will say that the person who died on the cross just looked like Jesus, but it really wasn't him. In fact, this is the belief that the Muslims hold to. This is what Muhammad taught, and this is a stark contrast between Christianity and Islam. It really does not matter what Muhammad said six centuries after the death of Jesus Christ. There are those who saw it happen, who reported that it was Jesus who died on the cross, and that this was from people from the people who knew Jesus better than anybody else knew Jesus. And so I think they would know whether it really was Jesus who died on the cross. However, one of the most widely circulated versions of this says that Jesus didn't actually die. It was, in fact, Jesus of Nazareth on the cross, but instead of dying, he was just hurt real bad. And so the theory goes like this. While on the cross, Jesus fainted and he passed out, and because of this, the soldiers thought that he was dead, and because the Passover was approaching, they hurriedly took him down before he was really dead, and they placed him in the tomb. And later on, Jesus came to, and he managed to roll the huge stone away and escape from the tomb. And so this theory requires one to believe that Jesus went through six trials, no sleep, a brutal scourging, and killed uh, that killed many people, a crown of thorns shoved on his head, nails placed in his hands and feet, after hours on the cross, had a spear stabbed into his side, was then wrapped in grave clothes, was placed in a tomb that was sealed with a huge rock over an entrance, and armed guards placed outside the tomb. And now Jesus somehow regained his consciousness, somehow wiggled out of the linen wrappings, and, and yet without disturbing them, he kept everything neat, folded it up, did everything that was possible, used his ninja skills to move the rock out of the tomb, Pat went past the guards, snuck past them, and then went on his own way. 
And that's the most ridiculous theory because that would be a miracle in itself, maybe even greater than the miracle of the resurrection, that somehow he just didn't wasn't really dead. Then there's the wrong tomb theory. This theory says that the disciples could not remember where the tomb was. They didn't remember where it was located. And so the ladies were so stricken with grief and shock over the death of Jesus, they went to the wrong tomb and mistakenly thought that Jesus had been risen from the dead. And from this time on, everyone else just kept going to the wrong tomb. And all they had to do was look next door and they would have found the right tomb, but they went to the wrong tomb. And there's many reasons why that's fictitious. First of all, Jewish leaders and Roman authorities did not want a group of people to be able to claim that their leader had risen from the dead, which is why guards were posted there in the first place. If the tomb was not really empty, no one could have believed in the resurrection. And are we to believe that the guards were guarding the wrong tomb? Like they said, oh, go guard the wrong tomb. All someone would have had to do is to identify the correct tomb. Remember, it belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. And because of the gospel's record, he took the body of his own, uh, of his own private tomb and he placed Jesus into his own tomb and had him, uh, all they would have had to do is say, hey, Joseph of Arimathea, what tomb is it? What tomb did you place Jesus' body in? And Christianity would have never gained any ground because people would have known where the tomb was at. All they had to do was produce the body and say, look, he's not really resurrected. We stand on firm historical ground that the tomb was empty. The third theory is the theft theory. This theory says the disciples stole the body of Jesus. Interestingly enough, this is the exact conspiracy that the Jewish authorities propagated from the beginning according to our text. This is very unlikely as an explanation for at least two reasons. First, we're supposed to think that the disciples somehow outmaneuvered a guard of highly skilled Roman soldiers. Remember who the disciples are. They're fishermen and tax collectors and they later are found hiding in an upper room. And all of the Jewish and Roman authorities were trying to keep anything from happening, so it's very doubtful that the disciples would have been able to take the body of Jesus. Secondly, the idea of the resurrection was not at all believed. The Pharisees of the day denied this kind of resurrection, and so why would the disciples steal a body to propagate something that no one was going to believe in in the first place? The idea of a resurrection was not something the disciples were going to propagate if no one was going to believe it because many felt that death was to be liberated from the body and no one would have wanted to come back into the body. And the idea of a resurrection made no sense to many people, including the Jews. Why would someone want to enter back into the world with sickness and decay and death? If the disciples stole the body, it would have made zero sense to propagate the resurrection. Plus, they were scattered. When did they come together? They were hiding. I like what one person said. The likelihood of these timid, scared, Galilean disciples stealing the body of Jesus out from under the noses of a guard of highly disciplined and skilled Roman soldiers while they all slept 
an offense that's punishable by death is absolutely ridiculous. Here's the deal. If all we had was an empty tomb, if that's all we had, just an empty tomb of Jesus, then someone could cry foul. There would be something strange going on and you really could not make a legitimate claim for the resurrection. Someone could say that the body was stolen. However, if the disciples did steal the body and then spread the claim that Jesus was alive, which is essential to a resurrection, and no one ever saw him, then it would be obvious that they were lying. If they if they said, hey, just an empty tomb and Jesus is resurrected, but nobody ever saw resurrected Jesus, then it would be obvious it was a lie. However... If people actually saw Jesus, if they actually saw him, after they saw him die on a cross, and after they saw him placed in a tomb, then there has to be an answer. We have to, there has to be an answer to why Jesus was seen after his death, which is why there's another theory, which is known as the hallucination theory. This theory says that every single one of Christ's post-resurrection appearances were really only supposed appearances because every single person was hallucinating. In this way, all post-resurrection appearances can be dismissed. After all, the people of Jesus' day did not have the scientific knowledge that we have today And so we are much smarter and we have all the science. And so they were more prone to believe in the supernatural. And we are less prone to believe in the supernatural. And they were in such pain and grief over the death of Jesus that his followers believed that Jesus was still somehow guiding them and that Jesus was still somehow leading them. And they were just kind of out of their minds. And they therefore put visions of Jesus in their minds. And they would even converse with him in their minds. And some say that the disciples may or may not have believed that Jesus was physically alive, but they believed that he was spiritually alive. This belief, after being propagated so long, morphed into the idea that Jesus rose from the grave physically, and some scholars have gone so far as to say the disciples hallucinated everything. However, let's remember that overnight, the disciples' worldview had shifted. Stop and think about it. There's no TV, there's no internet, there's no fast means of transportation, no publicized debate or discussion, yet in a short amount of time, thousands upon thousands of people believe that Jesus rose from the grave. It is one thing to make a claim that the disciples hallucinated or were somehow delusional in their thinking, but how can we possibly explain the influence that they had on thousands of people and their dramatic change in their behavior within days of the resurrection. Furthermore, the disciples were not only were not the only ones that claimed that they had seen the risen Christ. There were hundreds of other people. This is was not just an individual making a claim like, oh, I saw his body. Jesus ate with people. He drank with people. He talked with people. Hallucinations don't typically appear to hundreds of people, and they do not eat and drink with people. This was a physical presence. It would be possible to perhaps fool a few people into thinking that there had been a resurrected Jesus, but Paul makes it clear that Jesus appeared to over 
500 brothers at one time in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6. And Paul is saying, go and ask them in that verse. You, they're still alive. You can verify what I'm saying. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, listen, Jesus is resurrected. And if you don't believe me, just go talk to the over 500 eyewitnesses that seen Jesus resurrected. Go have a conversation with them and talk to them about it. Suppose I shared with you some outrageous story this morning. Something absolutely ridiculous. Something like one time Michael Jordan was in a shooting slump and he called me up and he said, Hey, hey, Josh Monda, I need some help. Can you help me improve my game? And then he said, Hey, come to come and, and help me out and come to a Bulls game. And, and what would you think of that? You would be like, Yeah, no, that never happened because some of you maybe have seen me play basketball and you know that I'm not really that great. Or you would say, there's no way that somebody famous is going to come to you and ask you for advice. You would say, yeah, right. Why wouldn't you believe that story? Because it seems absolutely rid ridiculous. It's outrageous. How could you discredit my story? What would you do to prove that that story was crazy? Well, you could somehow track down Michael Jordan and call him up and say, hey, do you remember that time that Josh Monda helped you improve your game? And he would say, I don't know who that is. And you know what? Those who lived in the first century had access to those who claimed to see Jesus after the resurrection. They could go and they could speak to them. They could talk to the apostles. They could find out if it was true. In fact, those who had seen the risen Christ were telling other people that they had seen him. And some were even losing their lives because of it. Proclaiming the resurrection of Christ was not some popular thing to do. Therefore, tell me why someone would lose their life for a lie. Why? And an unpopular lie at that. No one would have made up this story. In fact, remember the disciples did not even really believe it was going to happen. And no one expected it was going to happen. Here's the thing. Hallucinations occur because someone is anticipating and expectation of something that's going to happen. If you've ever had a hallucination, you would know that because you are anticipating something so great that, that it's going to happen and sometimes we hallucinate those kinds of things. But the historical record shows no such anticipation. And even after they were told of the resurrection, they, they were still prone not to believe it. So we have seen the swoon theory, the wrong tomb theory, the theft theory, the hallucination theory. And they're all false. It leaves one possible explanation. And that's this. That the resurrection is true. It's true. So given the fact that there are many false explanations for the resurrection, there has to be a true explanation. And there is, as we started off with. There has to be a truth. Jesus actually died on the cross, and Jesus really rose from the grave. And if you make the claim that the resurrection of Christ did not cause a radical shift in history then you must ask yourself, then what did? If we say, well, the resurrection didn't really cause anything in history, then what did cause something in history? Because there is no denying the shift in history, 
even among secular scholars that around 2,000 years ago, there was this radical shift in history. An entirely new religious movement and community was formed almost overnight. Immediately, hundreds of people claimed Jesus rose from the grave, even when it meant that they could die for that claim. This movement was so great that by some estimates, it now makes up one-third of the population of the world. If you don't believe in the resurrection, then the burden of proof is on the one who claims there is no resurrection. Since plausibility is a criteria for proving something, because nothing in history can be established 100% with certainty, in other words, things that have happened in the past, we can say that we're almost certain of it, but we can't be 100% certain. Or we can't have perfect certainty. And since we can't have perfect certainty for even historical events, the question is, what is the most plausible And what can be historically verified with the most certainty? This is not discouraging. This is just fact of all the world views and why some things do require faith. So what we do is we take the evidence we have. We come up with the most plausible solution. We have already made it clear that the previous theories have little certainty. And the most plausible, most certain explanation is that the resurrection is true. And so to deny that means the burden of proof is on the person who denies the most plausible explanation. And so you have to prove that it didn't really happen. Now, some people will say, yeah, but you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. I've had people say that to me. You can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. That's absolutely ridiculous. That's an absolutely ridiculous claim. Nonetheless, there is evidence outside of the Bible as well. There are very few people that would dispute these facts. Jesus Christ did die. I know of very few people that will dispute that. Jesus Christ did die by crucifixion. His followers believed he rose again and physically appeared to him. Very few people would dispute that. So he died... His followers believed he did rise again and physically appeared to him, to them. The lives of Jesus Christ's followers were changed as a result of seeing the risen Christ. Again, you can't dispute that. So think of even how the Apostle Paul's life was changed after he saw the resurrected Christ. This man who was hunting down Christians and killing them became the strongest advocate. From the beginning of the resurrection until now, people have tried to explain away the resurrection of Jesus, but they all fall short. If the resurrection is true, which I believe it is, I believe it's true historically, I believe it's true biblically, and remember the burden of proof lies on the person who says it's not true. So if it is true, And I believe we proved it is. If Jesus did die on the cross, if he did rise from the grave, then what's the implications for my life? If this is true, what does it mean to me? You see, the reason people deny the resurrection is because if it's true, 
there's implications. If it really is true, there's implications. Christianity rises and falls on the resurrection. If Christ came and died and rose again, and it's true, then what does it mean? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? If he didn't rise from the dead, then there's nothing to worry about. Then there are no implications. If it's not true, there's no implications. If it's not true, then we shouldn't be here on Easter Sunday. We shouldn't be here on any Sunday if it's not true. However, if he did rise from the dead, then there are implications. So let's look at a few of those implications real quick this morning. First, if it's true, then he has authority over life and death. If he really did rise from the dead, then he has authority over life and death. This means that everything that Jesus said about himself is true. That means that when he says, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth, that is a true statement. That means that he has the authority over all things, including life and death. Jesus told his disciples that no one takes his life from him, but that he lays it down on his own accord because he has the right to lay it down and he has the right to take it up again. There is no one on the face of this earth that, that has ever had the power to decide when they came into the world. No one. No one has ever made the decision, you know what, I'm going to come into the world on this day. You don't get to make that decision. When you're coming, you're coming. That's just the way it is. And no one certainly has the ability to say that they are coming back to life and then do it. No one says, well, hey, by the way, when you kill me, I'm going to rise again in three days. Just, just so everybody knows that when I die, I will come back to life and then actually do it. Jesus did it. And if that's true, then he has all authority over life and death. That means life and death obey him. Because he's conquered death forever. And so he has authority. The implications for our life is he has authority over life and death. Number two, second implication. He has authority over sin and Satan. He has authority over sin and Satan. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, makes it clear that the wages of sin is death. Yet Jesus is the only one who ever died without sinning. If Jesus did not sin, then why did he have to die? Then why would he die? He didn't sin, so why does he have to die? Well, Scripture makes it clear in 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He died in our place for our sin. After his death on the cross, he rose again, displaying his victory over death and sin. But the beauty of this is those who know Christ as their Savior also have victory over sin and death. First Corinthians chapter 15 says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus has authority over death and life. He has authority over sin and Satan. And if Jesus has authority, then we come to the unavoidable, logical conclusion, and that's this. He has authority over us. He has authority over us. This means he is our Lord and our master. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13 say this. 
Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The name of the Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What does it mean when we say that Jesus has authority over us? Well, what it means is that he rules over our life. And whether you believe it or not, it doesn't matter. The sovereignty of God to rule over our life is not contingent upon our belief in it. You don't have to believe in it for it to be true. I think that's what we, we struggle with. You say, well, I don't, I don't approve. Again, it doesn't matter whether you approve it or not. The sky is blue whether you believe the sky is blue or not. And whether you approve of it or not. And Jesus is Lord over you, whether you approve of it or not. You know, often we will hear people say, well, well, I, I have made Jesus Lord of my life. But the truth is, we don't really make Jesus Lord of anything. Jesus is Lord of your life. You don't make Him Lord of your life. He is Lord of your life. The question is not whether He is Lord. The question is whether you've submitted to Him as Lord of your life. Now, or when it's too late. Because He's Lord of your life regardless. But the question is, when is your submission to His Lordship going to come? It can either come now, or it can come later, when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And by then it's too late. But now, not only does He rule over our life, but He loves us deeply Remember, God sent His Son to pay the price for our sin, and the resurrection is validation that all that Jesus said is true. In the resurrection, we see the truth. Paul said that the Son of God loved me and gave Himself for me. That is love. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verses 12 and 13, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. We should rejoice in the love that is demonstrated on the cross in the resurrection, that Jesus loves us that much. He rules our life. He loves us deeply. And he will judge us eternally. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 5. For as a father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. But the Father judges no one, but the Son has given all judgment, or but the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Now perhaps you would say, well, wait a second. You said He rules over us and He loves us. But now you're saying that He judges us. And it sounds bad. However, we can be saved from Christ's eternal judgment. 
if we receive him as Savior. If you confess your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We all want our lives to mean something. We all want to have purpose. That's what we want. And that's, that's what people want. Back in the day when Rick Warren sold the Purpose Driven Life book. I mean, that, that people were just buying that like crazy. Because everybody wants purpose. They want to mean something. What if the resurrection is true? Which it is. Then your life does mean something. Because it means that there's more to your life. Than right now. If the resurrection is true, it means that there's more to your life than this world. It means that because of the resurrection, the curse of sin will one day end and there will be no more disease, there will be no more famine, there will be no more disaster, there will be no more pain, there will be no more hurt, there will be no more heartache, and one day, Everybody that has placed their faith in Him will live with Jesus forever. But the only way that that holds true, the only way it holds true that we live with Jesus forever is if we trust in Him as our Savior. Otherwise, we will be judged. So I ask you this morning, do you believe in the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do you believe it? Scripture is clear that you must believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead to be saved. So Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says. You must believe in your heart. There's not a list of what you must do. It's not like follow this list of rules. Here's the list of rules. And if you follow this list of rules. Then you can be saved. That's not what happens. Not, here's, here's the requirements. There's a truth that you must believe. And if you don't believe in that truth, in the truth of the gospel, then you're going to enter judgment. However, not only is there a truth to be believed, but there is a confession that must be made. There are many people who believe in the resurrection. But belief in the resurrection will not get you to heaven. But the denial of the resurrection will send you to hell. You can believe in the resurrection and not be saved. But you can't deny it and be saved. Intellectual assent to the resurrection or the gospel does not save a soul. Scripture is clear that even demons believe and shake. Listen, Satan believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That He did die on the cross. That salvation is only through Jesus Christ. Satan believes all those things. Satan believes them, but you know what? Satan will not enter into heaven. He's not going to repent and surrender his life to Jesus as Lord. You so 
so often in our lives and in our evangelism, we leave this out. We ask people to pray a little prayer and we confirm their intellectual assent to Jesus because they said this little prayer and they know all about Jesus and they know all the right answers. And we stress moralism in our salvation and, oh, you got to be a good person. You got to do this. You got to do that. And we promise salvation in heaven and it's a lie. Who knows how many people profess to be Christians that think they are saved not because not because they actually believe and got all of Romans chapter 10, 9 right, but because they got half of Romans 10, 9 right, and they think, well, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. Because I believe. They say they're a Christian. But they've never surrendered to Him. He does not rule their life. This is why we should ask, do you surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Do you surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and His rule in your life? This is why it says you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus, it's not about believing in the resurrection. That's half of it. You must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. It's not about saying the right words. It's about Jesus being Lord. Yes, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And yes, I believe that He rose from the grave as my Savior. And my life belongs to Him as Lord. I surrender everything. He's Lord of my life no matter what, but I surrender to His Lordship. Eternity depends on our answer to that question. Do you surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ as His rule in your life? That's what eternity depends on. It's not, hey, I believe in a resurrection. Well, that's wonderful. So does Satan. Great news. Do you surrender to His Lordship? Does He rule your life? And here's the thing, church. There are many people, probably gathered in churches, on this Easter Sunday, sitting in pews, singing nice little praise songs, singing about the resurrection of Jesus, and they believe in it with all of their heart. Yes, I believe Jesus rose from the grave. Yes, I believe He rose from the dead. Yes, I believe it's true. And they probably lift their hands during worship, and they probably sing the right songs, and they know all the phrases, and they know all the right words to say, but they have never surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You say, well, what are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying that if they have never surrendered their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, then they got half of Romans 10, 9 right, and they are dying and going to hell. That's what I'm saying. Because Scripture is abundantly clear. Many will say unto me that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Look at all these many wonderful works that we did in your name, Jesus. And what's he going to say? I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work lawlessness. They know all the right things. But they never surrendered to his lordship. Have you this morning? 
you surrendered to his lordship in your life. The resurrection is true. He conquered the grave. He conquered death and sin forever. And we need to believe it. And we need to receive him as Lord of our life and confess that. Have you done that this morning? If not, I'll give you the opportunity to do so this morning. If you'd like to talk with me or maybe you just want to come and pray. Maybe the Lord spoke to you in a different way this morning. I'm going to be standing right down front. If you'd love to talk, then we can talk. If you want somebody to pray with you, I'll pray with you. If you want to come and pray on your own, you can do that. You can pray in your pew. However you feel led this morning, I want to challenge you to do so this morning. Let's close our time of prayer.